Uh, we've had quite the break from our sermon series, uh, Heaven's Heroes. And, uh, you know, there's nothing better for the heart that is suffering than to come together as a body and hear the Word of God together. And so I'm excited. Uh, I, I got this message. I finished my notes two weeks before the Sunday that got canceled. And um, it's just a timely word for the place where we are. I haven't hardly changed a thing. And, and, and the Lord just gave it for, for just a time as this. So uh, the hero in the faith that we're going to look at today is David. But before we jump into the narrative to kind of stay with the form and format that we were going on, I want to give you a memory verse uh, for this week, and we'll get a lot more context of it in the sermon. But our memory verse today is 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 47. If you want to turn there, we're going to be camping in, in chapter 16 and 17 today. And the, the scripture says this, And everyone assembled will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. And so in Samuel, uh, the, the prophet Samuel, his writings were largely devoted to David, the man after God's own heart, uh, who became Israel's greatest king, and so since we're focusing on David, I'm going to give you as our, our uh, outside reading this week, uh, if, you're, if you're doing that, uh, we're going to be starting, the narrative of David starts in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and it goes through the end of the chapter, and then it continues into the entirety of uh, 2 Samuel. So that's 24 chapters total. If you want to get even more, there's some recap in the Chronicles, and I think he bleeds over into 1 Kings a bit. So uh, bonus material if you, if, you, if you get done with 1 and 2 Samuel, and that'll give you a good broad stroke of King David's life. So while you're recording that, while you're jotting down the memory verse, if you so desire to, uh, let's, let's pray. Father... We thank you, Lord, for, for the body of believers, Lord. We thank you for your church, God. Lord, we pray today, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, Lord. Father, we understand, Lord God, that it is not in our own hearts to perceive the word of God. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and lead us into all truth, that, Lord, that he would open the eyes of our understanding, God, that you would make the light of the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus shine so brightly to us today through your word, Lord. Father God, uh, help us to get past the mentality of the world that this is foolishness, Lord. And God, let us see it as your own glory, as the way, the truth, and the light, Lord. So, Father, give us grace to do that today, Lord. Build your church, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So, as we read the Old Testament, we have to remember that all, not some, not part, but all Old Testament Scripture points forward to Jesus. And there are many Old Testament symbols uh, that point to New Testament truths. 
And one method that God uses in Scripture is that He takes certain heroes and uses them as types of Jesus. A type is a person or thing symbolizing or exemplifying the ideal or defining characteristic of something. In many ways, David is a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. To show you this, I have chosen to look exclusively, because David's a big broad stroke, you know, something like 40-something chapters. So we're going to kind of zoom in and look exclusively at what is probably my favorite narrative in all of the Bible. And this has been my favorite narrative in all of the Bible since I was a little boy. Uh, and it's never changed. I love the story of David and Goliath. I love it. It is my favorite story since I was a little kid. Let's see if I can get this higher again. Is it this one, PCM? Yeah, there we go. There it is. Boom. All right. Look at that. That kind of makes me look small again. Uh, so, um, where was I? Uh, my favorite story. However, throughout David's narrative, through the whole narrative, there's typology of Jesus. And so I want to challenge you, if you go and you read First and Second Samuel, while you're reading through the books, look at things. Be looking for things that point to Jesus. Be looking for things in the life of David that, that you can say, oh, maybe that is a pointer towards Christ. And as you do that, be thinking, let your Bible brain be going, uh, you know, is there a New Testament scripture that defines that connection between this Old Testament scripture, which points to Christ? And, and, you know, there's this, there's this really technical Bible tool that you can use to find such scriptures. You ever, you ever have in your head, you think, okay, I know, I know kind of part of that scripture. Uh, but I'm not exactly sure where it is or exactly sure what it says. I'd love to look that up and know what it says. There's this really technical Bible tool. It's called Google. And, and so this is what you do. You type scripture, uh, and then you type in a couple of words that, that you're thinking of, and it is amazing. It never fails. The exact scripture that I'm looking for always pops up on the screen. Very technical Bible tool, um, but you should all have it on your internet browser. So, great way to look up stuff. So today, what I, what I hope to do is, I hope to model this for you in 1 Samuel 16 through 17. I hope to model for you looking at David's life and looking for pointers to Jesus, things in David's life that teach us about Jesus and then making New Testament connections that verify and that we can stand on and learn from uh, as David's life points forward to Jesus. So I'm going to give you a little bit of recap just to kind of get us up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I'm in 17 already. I need to go back. So 1 Samuel 16 is where we're going to start, but I'm going to give you a little recap first. First uh, Samuel is set at the end of the time period when God would raise up men and women called judges. Uh, and they would come, they would rise up, and, and, and they weren't anybody special usually, but God would raise them up and they would lead God's people through certain uh, difficult situations or, or whatever needed to be done. 
God was essentially the king of Israel, and he ruled through his judges as leadership was needed. Now, Samuel was a prophet and was the last judge before Israel, wanting to be, uh, before they decided, they, they began to look at the other nations around them and they began to, to, to feel weird because they were different than the other nations. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt a little out of place because of your faith? And, and there is a temptation to try to conform to the world. That's what they were feeling. They were feeling like they needed to blend in, like they needed to be politically correct, if you will, be like everybody else. And they demanded that God give them a man as a king. They didn't want to trust in God by faith to win their battles. They wanted a man that they could see to lead them. Uh, A man named Saul eventually became the king, and he uh, at first was a good king. In fact, God chose him. God picked him out of the crowd and made him king. Uh, But he soon began to be prideful and disobedient to God, And so Saul was rejected by God as king of Israel, although he physically remained on the throne. He no longer was the anointed one of God, but he was still the physical king of Israel. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God sent Samuel on a mission to anoint the new king of Israel. And so what he did to kind of be under guise, because he still was under uh, King Saul's uh, reign, and he was a little bit afraid that he would kill him if he knew that he was looking for the person to replace him. And so he went, and, and God told him, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go to Bethlehem, and you're going to uh, make sacrifice to me. And I want you to invite a man named Jesse and all his sons to the sacrifice. And from those sons, I'm going to show you who the new king is. So uh, when he saw Jesse's sons, and they, they started to come up one by one, and first was the oldest named Eliab. And when Samuel saw Eliab, he thought, surely this is God's man. Surely this is the one. Uh, but this is what God said in, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, this is a good scripture, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. That's just part of the background, but I want to say it'd be a good idea to mark that one, maybe type it in your phone uh, to go back and look at this week because that's a good scripture. There's a lot of depth and wisdom there. So all the sons passed before Samuel until there was none left. And Samuel asked Jesse if uh, this was all of his sons. And Jesse said, well, there's one more son. My son David, my youngest son David, is in the fields watching our sheep. He is the family shepherd. Uh, So Samuel demanded that David be summoned uh, to come before him so that he could see him. And then if you skip down in, in chapter 16, verse 12, it says this. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. 
So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And here's, here's something powerful. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. See, in the Old Testament, before God used certain people, He empowered them with His Spirit. Um, in the Old Testament, the Spirit was poured out in measure to only certain people whom God sought to use. But today, the Spirit of God is available, the Bible says, to all who will believe. And just like David, we need the empowering of the Holy Spirit to become a hero of heaven. And so while I was preparing this, the Lord spoke to me that we need to stop and we need to pray right here. So let's just close our eyes. You put your hand on your heart. You can raise your hand if you want. You can sit there with your hands by your side. But just listen to my voice and agree with me in prayer. Father, we need your Spirit, God. And so, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon us powerfully, Lord God. Lord, that we could bear the fruit that lasts, Lord God. That we would not waste our lives, Lord, in mediocrity, Lord, but that we would be great for you, Lord. And so, God, I pray that, that on every believer in this place, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would come and make us like Christ, Lord God. Make us bold, Father God. Make us people, Lord God, who do your will gladly, Lord. And Father, I pray for anyone who does not believe in this place, Lord. I thank you that it is by your Holy Spirit and by the spoken word of God that, that people are born again, Lord. And so, God, I pray that you would speak life into those hearts, Lord God, that, that their eyes would be open, Lord God, to see your glory in the preaching of your word, and that today that they would believe in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for that. Amen. So in chapter 17, uh, we find the Philistines and Israelites encamped against each other for war. The Philistine camp was on one hill, and the Israelite camp was on the other, and in the middle of them was a valley, was a battlefield. The Philistines had a champion of war named Goliath. The Bible says that he was nine feet tall. He wore bronze armor, supersized bronze armor, and in general, this guy was a ruthless killing machine. You know, he was a bad man. He was an intimidating man. He was a person with a history and a reputation to destroy. And every day he would come out into the valley and challenge Israel to send somebody to fight him. And the wager was this. It was a one-on-one -on -one battle, and the winner of that battle, of that one-on-one -on -one face-off, his nation would become the slave owners of the nation that lost. The, the losers would become the subservient nation under uh, the nation that won. And Israel was terrified of Goliath, especially the man-king named Saul, the one that they had chosen instead of God. Now, the Bible says that Saul was a head taller than any other Israelite. Israel had chosen him over God to be their king for the specific purpose 
of having a physical man lead them into battle. That's what they actually said when they made him king. We want to, to name a king who can lead us into battle. Um, now, surely Saul was the man to fight this giant warrior, Goliath. He's bigger than anybody else, and there's this giant. But Saul was terrified. And like we said before, like the Scripture said before, God's man or woman uh, is not about the outward appearance, but rather about the heart. That's God's man. It's not who we look and we see. You know, we, we look and we see and we say, oh, he's impressive. She's impressive. God doesn't look at that. The Bible says he looks at what is in our hearts. And so God was preparing the victory in the heart, not of a tall and stately king, but in the heart of a low and humble shepherd boy. So Goliath's challenge and his taunting, it went on for 40 days. 40 days he would come out and, and profane God's people, profane God, uh, talk about how they were worthless, talk about how they were going to destroy him. And after 40 days, Jesse, David's father, sent David to the army uh, to bring provision to his three older brothers who were enlisted in the army. So they had been encamped uh, at the battlefield. David was bringing them some food, some stuff from home. And while David was at the battlefield, Goliath strutted into the valley and began his daily taunt of the Israelite army. Israel began their usual retreat into fear. Uh, however, David began to question other members of the army as to why no one was fighting this giant, why no one in God's people was standing up to this man who was profaning God. It just blew his mind. And when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David saying these things, he began to be angry at his brother. And he began to accuse his brother of being prideful and deceitful. However, David stood firm on his conviction that the giant must be destroyed. And soon, as the chatter began to go through the army, word got to the king, Hey, I think there's somebody who wants to fight Goliath, who's willing to fight Goliath. And so Saul said, Well, bring him to me. Bring him here. Let me talk to him. Let's, let's, let's get him in front of me. Now, Saul was familiar with David. Uh, the Bible tells us that at one point, whenever Saul began to uh, be disobedient to God and the Spirit of the Lord left him, he began to have what looked like some type of bipolar disorder or depression or something along those lines. And they said, hey, we know this really great musician, uh, and we'll bring him in anytime you're feeling that way, and he will play his harp for you. And so David would come in. David was the musician, and he would come in. And so Saul, you could just imagine, he's, he's sitting there waiting for the musician to, or for the, for the warrior to come in. And oh dear, it's the harp player. The harp player wants to fight Goliath. And, and so the Bible says that, um, when Saul saw David, that he was the one to volunteer for the fight, his immediate res response was that David did not stand a chance in the fight. But David told him about times uh, when he was a shepherd. He said, he said, I, I was a shepherd. I was watching my father's sheep. 
And one day a lion came and tried to kill one of my sheep. And, and you know what I did? I got up and I, I took the lion by its, by its mane and I killed it. And, and he said, I did the same thing with the bear. I'm telling you, Saul, come on, king, I can fight. Let me at this guy. And uh, so you see, what we got to realize is, is that David had that confidence from the times whenever he was all alone in the fields of Israel tending his father's sheep. When nobody else was watching in the mundane task of, of daily life, God was preparing David for his battle with Goliath. And I want to tell you guys, you know, you may feel that your life is boring and mundane and meaningless at times, but I want to encourage you to be faithful to God in the mundane because faithfulness to God and His Word in the mundane is what prepares us for our great victory in the future. God is doing something in your mundane you know, God is doing something every day whenever I go to work and I sit at a computer and I interact with my, my coworkers. God is doing something in my wife whenever she's taking care of our children and wiping up everything under the sun <laughs> all day long, you know. Life can get mundane, but God is doing something in your mundane place and He is bringing you to your victory. Amen. So now I want to read a little bit. Let's read the story a little bit. We're up to speed. Let's go to verse 37 of chapter 17. This is David speaking. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Then David, then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then, armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield-bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will, cut, I will kill you and cut off your head, and then I will give the bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Here's our memory verse. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues His people, but not with sword and spear, 
This is the Lord's battle, and He will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, I love this, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines. These were the cowards. These were those who were terrified. They, they, they were lifted to courage and triumph. They rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. The bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the Israelite army returned and plundered the deserted Philistine camp. That's a good story. So God sent a man full of his spirit to rescue his people from an enemy that seemed insurmountable. Now, oftentimes, when we read the Bible, we make a mistake of interpretation of the types of the Bible. So let's talk briefly about the high-level New Testament typology before we discuss some of the specifics, before I get into my points. Uh, if we're not careful, we may think this. We may think, well, I'm David. You know, when, when Satan or my flesh or whatever the enemy is rears itself up, I'm going to pull up my bootstraps, I'm going to roll up my sleeves, and I'm going to take him down, you know. And in a sense, that's true, but we have to be careful uh, in, in these types of interpretations. Jesus, on a high level, would teach us differently. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, and we are his sheep. He says that when an enemy comes, the sheep are unable to defend themselves, but the good shepherd defends them. This shepherd and sheep symbology is all through the New Testament. We are sheep helpless against the enemies of sin and Satan and flesh. Then our great warrior shepherd, Jesus, comes and he wins for us the victory. So let me propose that in this narrative, we are not David. That's not us. That's not the Christian. Uh, we're the cowering, fearful, and helpless Israelites, and Jesus is the Savior of the war. Jesus is David. And having said that, I want to show you five wonderful truths that David a type of Christ can teach us about our Lord Jesus. Number one, David delivered his father's sheep from the lion. Now, I hope that it's not lost on you the significance of the fact that the enemy to the sheep was a lion. I hope that your, your Bible sensor goes off and, and you begin to think of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 that says this, Stay alert, 
Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now you see, sheep are clumsy and they're not very good fighters. If a lion comes against them, they really don't stand a chance. A lion, uh, you could ask my son Josiah, loves animals, loves the, uh, watching shows about animals. Son, if you have a lion versus a lamb, who's going to win? The lion, Dad. You know, there's no chance in that fight. Likewise, like the sheep, we are weak and clumsy and really not good fighters in the spiritual realm. We are really not. You know, I could have a great morning of prayer and devotion in the Word, and a lot of times by 10 o'clock in the morning, I am in the flesh. You know, we are, we are frail and flimsy and, um, I can't think of the word. We flip and flop all the time. You know, we move from the spirit to the flesh on a whim, on our circumstances. We're not really good fighters in the spiritual realm. So when the devil attacks us, we don't really stand a chance against him in our own strength. But in the great salvation, that our Savior, Jesus Christ, has wrought for us, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the victory. That's why the next verse Peter, in Peter, 1 Peter 5, 9, it says this. It says, stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Not in your own strength or in your own ability, but in your faith. Stand against him. So we are to stand against Satan, not in our own strength, but in faith in Christ. And without the Spirit, we're helpless against Satan. The Spirit, what what does Paul say? It's the Spirit of Christ. He is the victory. Uh, So it's in that power, in that Spirit, that our warrior shepherd comes and we have the victory. Number two. Even as David was moving to save his people, his own brothers and countrymen despised him. We see that first in Eliab, his oldest brother. Whenever David was beginning to stand up and ask, why is nobody fighting Goliath? Uh, His brother comes up and and tells him, basically tears into him, uh, saying, you're just prideful and deceitful and you need to get out of here and go home. You are not what we need. You are not what we want. You need to get out of here. You are not the solution. And so that hit David right in the face. Uh, then he goes before his king and he says, he says, I'm going to fight. I'm your man. And the king says, Oh gosh, you got no chance, buddy. You got no chance. You will not win this fight. I, I don't even want you to go out there for me. There's no chance. And so he's despised by his brothers. He's despised by his king. How does that point to Jesus? Isaiah 53, 2 says this, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot. This is a prophecy of Christ. Like a root in dry ground, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. In fact, the religious leaders of the day, the, 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 
the pastors of the synagogues, if you will, if you can put yourselves in, in, in his position, uh, the leaders of the church, uh, they hated and envied Jesus so much that they murdered him. They murdered the man. The religious leaders hated and envied Christ so much that they killed him. They had him, they had him executed. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 23 says this, The gospel of Christ is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. So just as Eliab and Saul looked at David and thought to themselves, that is not the kind of warrior that we want or that we need. So the world looks at Christ and his gospel and sees them as foolishness. You know, it started all the way back in Jesus' day. Um, the Jews were expecting a Messiah who would come and who would overthrow physically the Roman Empire. And when Christ came, and, and he came uh, in a nonviolent way, and he came rather than elevating himself high, he came elevating himself low and 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 promoting and, and accomplishing a freedom and a liberation from sin rather th than the Romans, they said, that's not the kind of Savior I want. He is not what I want. And today the world is saying the exact same thing. I love God, but not that God. I won't have your Jesus. I won't have him. And, you know, I was talking with my aunt yesterday, and she said, she said, you know, it seems like Christianity is dwindling. And I said, well, you know, I call her Nanny. I said, Nanny, you know, uh, that's a distinctly American characteristic because all over the world, despite the threat of uh, suffering and persecution and death, the church is growing, except for in America where we're so afraid that someone is going to think that we're a little weird and I include myself in this, Lord, help us, Jesus. Someone's going to think that we're a little weird or we're a little different, that we are terrified to open our mouth and speak the gospel. We need the Holy Spirit. But in 1 Corinthians, that very next verse in that 1 Corinthians passage where it says that, the Jews think it as foolishness and, and the Gentiles see it as a stumbling block. It says, and this is us, it says, but to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we see in David what's true about Jesus. We see that our Savior, who we cherish so deeply, and see as our Savior and Lord so clearly is viewed as a foolish choice to the lost people all around us. So we pray fervently that just as God opened our eyes to the truth, that He will open theirs. And guys, that's my prayer right now in, in, in this flooding and we're, you know, the whole Texas coast, the whole coast has been affected by what we just went through. And I have a feeling that after we get out of service today, we're going to go read about devastation in Florida. And my prayer, and I pray that you would join this 
in me, with me, is God, don't let hard hearts be made hard. Let hearts be made soft. Let them be made tender and responsive to you, Lord. God, let people turn to you as they hit the bottom. Let people who would never have turned to you open their eyes to see so that they can believe. Will you pray that with me? Let's begin to pray that as a church. Number three. David did not come with the standard weapons of war, but with a staff, a sling, and five stones. Not only was Goliath offended that Israel sent this unimpressive-looking young man to fight him, but he was really insulted that he didn't have any weapons. Likewise, Christ won our victory in a way that was not conventional in this world. If you remember in John chapter 18, when the mob's coming to arrest Jesus and they're in the garden, uh, Peter, good old Peter, <laughs> he draws his sword, you know, and, and he's ready to fight. And uh, Jesus, you know, he didn't say, go get him, boy. You know, he said, he said, put your sword back in your sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? And so, you know, again, they were expecting a revolutionary who would come and, you know, lead a war and overthrow the Romans. But, but that's not what they got. That wasn't God's plan. The infinite God of the universe humbled himself in human form, and he made himself very low, humiliated, and took on a lot of suffering to win the victory. You know, the conventional way is, you attack me, I'm going to attack you. You're going down, you know. That's the conventional way. If somebody comes and, and punches you in the face, I'm pretty sure I'm going to punch them back, you know, uh, or defend myself in some way. But Christ says he was like a lamb, a mute lamb that was led to the slaughter. He made himself very low. And in order to pay for our sin against an infinite God, that's what it required. It required God Almighty being completely stripped of his glory in our place. So he made himself low. He's an awesome and unconventional Savior. But one day, he will have the final victory in the physical world. Not with a sword or a spear, but by the power of his word. Let me read you a passage here. Uh, this is Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and true, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and his head were and on his head were many crowns. His name a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white, followed him on white horses. Here's the weapon. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from the winepress. 
on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Then in, in, verse nine, in chapter 19, verse 21, speaking of the armies, this is so stupid. These armies one day are going to gather against God. <laughs> they're going to come and they're going to make, they're going to, they're going to decide that, you know, we see all these end time things coming and all the Bible is coming true, but dang nabbit, we're not going to be conquered by God. And they're going to come and they're going to gather with all their nuclear weapons and all their machine guns. And Jesus is going to come and he's going to say, you're done. <laughs> I'm going to read it. (laughs) It's how stupid the world is. Uh, It says their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the white horse. One preacher that I listen to podcasts sometimes, he says he's going to come and he's going to speak, I am. (sighs) You know, the Bible says, I like to think about this stuff. The Bible says that He holds all things together by the mighty power of his command. And so, you know, on the atomic structure, atoms are made up of protons and electrons and neutral particles. And every law of magnetism tells us that protons and neutrons, uh, I'm sorry, let me back up. The nucleus is what we focus. The protons are, are together, holding the atom together in the nucleus. And every law of magnetism says that light poles repel each other. And there's no explanation in all of science of why the nucleus of an atom holds together. The Bible says that God holds all things together by the mighty power of his command. And I I just imagine whenever Christ comes back, you know, man, release And they're gone. And then the Bible says that one day all things are going to burn with a fervent heat as 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 uh, Christ comes and he makes all things new. And I, I just see that command being released as he makes all things new. That's the power of the God that we serve. Yeah. It's kind of fun to think about. Uh, so Jesus won our victory over sin and death in the unconventional way of making himself low. Just like David came with sticks instead of swords, Jesus, rather than rising up and, and leading a revolution, he made himself low. And we can be sure that he will triumph physically over all the powers of evil and consummate his kingdom and make us the lowly sheep who have believed. He'll make us co-heirs of all things not with swords or guns or nuclear weapons, but by the word of his mouth. He'll come with that unconventional weapon. Number four, David saved his people when they were in imminent danger from an oppressive enemy nation. Likewise, Jesus came as the Messiah when uh, the Romans were oppressively ruling over the Jews. But as we already talked about, he did not come to free the Jews from the Romans as they desired, but to free the Jews from their sin. You see, the greater enemy that opposes God's people today is sin and death. From that day to this day, our greatest enemy is not for them the Romans, and it's not today for us uh, North Korea or Saudi Arabia or any other uh, nation that is posing an imminent 
threat to us. Those are significant threats, but they are not our greatest enemy. Our greatest enemy is sin and death. So let's look at what the Apostle Paul says about this enemy. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of the sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So I want you to look at our position whenever we were not in Christ, whenever we were under sin. We were spiritually dead in our sin. We obeyed the devil as his slave. We were under his spiritual blinding power. We loved our sinful desire more than we loved God, which put us under his wrath, under his anger. But for his own special people, for the church, for all who will believe, for us, God's special people, God was not finished. The very next verse, verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Colossians 2, 13-14 you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So I want you to see that we, God's people, were in imminent danger of His wrath due to our love of sin and Satan's use of our love of sin to enslave us. But Jesus came as a mighty warrior and saved His people from the most dangerous of places and brought us the victory of eternal life. Number five, last point. David used, this is good, this, this is so relevant to where we are today. David used the enemy's own weapons against him to seal the victory. You see, when David had dropped the giant, hit him with the stone, fell down on his face, when he dropped him to the ground, he was still alive. This was a fight to the death. Uh, and so all David had was his sling, four stones, and a staff. Now, I guess he could have started whacking him with the stick, but that is not uh, a very efficient way to win the battle. And so he approached the giant, drew the sword out of its sheath, says he killed him, and then he cut off his head with the giant's own sword. In fact, we find out later that he kept that as a little trophy in, in his house. Um, 
So in the same manner, Jesus used the onslaught of Satan against himself to accomplish his mission of defeating the devil, securing our redemption, and purchasing our salvation. Now track with me here on something. If the magnitude of a crime is measured by the level of injustice that occurs when the crime is committed, the murder of Jesus on the cross was the most heinous of all crimes in the history of the world. You see, Jesus was God. Biblically, there is no question about that. Jesus was God. He was the only man in the history of humanity who never sinned, not once. He was not only innocent of the crimes which he was accused, he was totally innocent of any wrong for the entirety of his life. Yet he was beaten and tortured and humiliated and killed in the most brutal and humiliating and debasing of ways. See, something you need to understand about crucifixion is, is that not only was it meant to inflict physical pain, but it was meant to strip the person of their humanity. As they were uh, derobed in public, spit upon, beat upon, mocked, as their physical life was literally beaten out of them, they were mentally and spiritually debased and stripped of their very humanity. And so we have the God of the universe, the perfect spotless lamb, being completely crushed physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. The enemy was attacking our Lord. Make no mistake about that. Now let me give you a quick word of doctrinal caution. If we're not careful sometimes, we may allow ourselves uh, to think that sometimes God looks down and he sees something bad going on and he says, whoa, that's really, really bad. I've got to somehow take this really bad thing and I've got to make it work for good so that Romans 8.28 is true. I need to do that. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible does not teach us that God is surprised by evil and then must turn it for good. In fact, the Bible teaches us that evil and calamity come from God with a predetermined good purpose in mind. Now listen, there's a lot of ways you could look at this. You could say uh, God sent the bad, or you can say, well, I know God could have stopped the bad, so he must have allowed it. No matter how you look at it, the scripture holds true. I'm going to read it to you in just a second. But first, let's look at Christ. Let's look at, you know, there's a lot of bad. Some, our community just experienced something really bad. We're going through difficult times right now. So let's look. You know, the Bible says that we are to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at the this ultimate bad that came across to, to Jesus and what the Bible says about it. Acts 2.23, But God, speaking of Christ being crucified, but God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. 
Acts 4, 27 through 28. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. Now listen to this. God himself, the most innocent man ever, crushed by evil men, but everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. You see, God did not have to take the murder of his son and work it for good. Figure out some way. I got to figure out some way to make good out of this evil act. He planned the murder of his son for his good purposes, for the redemption of you and of me and of everyone who will believe. God did that. Satan had many weapons against Jesus. There was the envy of the Pharisees, the hatred of the mob due to their unbelief, the satanic betrayal of Judas, the indifference of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate to justice, and the cruelty of the Romans. But I want you to see this. I want you to get this. Don't stop listening to me when you hear that the bad came from God. Because listen, God took that weapon that the enemy brought against his son and he cut off the enemy's head with it. He defeated the devil with what was coming against Christ to destroy him. He took that and he brought the greatest victory that ever has been wrought in the history of this world. Now you may be thinking, this is all good, but that's Jesus. What about me? What about what I'm going through right now? I'm going through some bad stuff. What about me? What chance do I stand when Satan comes against me with his warfare? Let's go a little bit more into the Scripture and see what the Bible says about the difficulty that will come to every single person in this world. Isaiah 45, 7, it's God speaking. He says, I create the light and make the darkness. Now listen, I sin good times and bad times. I, the Lord, am the one who does these things. Like, like Pastor said, you know, Job's response, the Lord gives Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, speaking of Job, do you remember when uh, at the beginning of the book, Satan comes to God and he asks God, he says, can I come against your servant Job? Will you let me go against him? And of course, what does God do? He allows the suffering come to Job, he, he gave Satan permission to buffet his servant Job. Uh, and we know that though Job was brought very low and afflicted much, God planned to restore Job. He planned to use his affliction as a means to minister to us today. Thousands of years later through the Bible, Job's story still ministers to us. 
and he used it, and here's something extremely relevant to you and to me right now. He used it to teach Job to trust and to know him more than he ever could have without the affliction. He was doing something. He was doing something in Job. So even the great enemy of God, and get this, please get this, even the great enemy of God, Satan, is only a servant to accomplish his good purposes. He is a vicious lion, but he is on a leash. He is controlled by our sovereign God for his good purposes in the world. Let me show you how Paul puts it. Hold on to this promise today. Romans 8, 28-29, And we know that God causes everything to work together for good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son, that, so that His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, He gave them right standing with Himself. And having given them right standing, He gave them His glory. Skip down to verse 35. We're, we're coming to a close here. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean He no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? And I would add for my brothers and sisters today or have lost my home and all my earthly possessions in a natural, in a natural disaster. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. So you see, it's good news that God sends bad things into our lives. Why is that? Because bad things are promised, are paired with the promise that God will work those things for good. In fact, God will accomplish a greater good in our lives than could have ever been done. Please believe this this morning. He will accomplish a greater good in our lives than could have ever been done if all we have ever experienced was easy and comfortable times. Through our struggles in life, we come to know God more intimately we come to love Him more supremely. And we come to glorify Him more completely. So in closing, I'm late. I'm not going to read it again, but I want you to see in the end of the story, what did the lowly sheep who were so afraid of Goliath do when their Savior won the victory? They were filled with courage to pursue the enemy and to destroy them. And they came back to the enemy camp. It said they plundered the enemy camp. They took those resources which were meant for their destruction and they used it for their own purposes, for their own kingdom good. And so let's, let's just stand and pray. Father, 
there are people in this room, Lord God, every person in some way, but God, but, but many so much more than others, Lord, who are in the middle of a real warfare, Lord, who are in the middle of much suffering and much affliction, Lord. God, all throughout our state, in the northwest with the fires, Lord, and in Florida with with the hurricane, Lord God. Lord, there is much suffering and affliction, Lord God. But God, we thank you, Lord, that what the enemy means to destroy us, you mean for good, Lord. And Father God, let us stand today with the Apostle Paul and say that this light affliction, which is for a small time in life, is working for us an eternal weight of glory, Lord. Father God, give us faith, Lord, that you are doing a deep work in our lives, Lord. And Father, I pray for every believer in here who is suffering much today, Lord, that you would turn their hearts more fully to you, Lord. That you would teach them to know you more intimately, Lord God, to trust you uh, more deeply, Lord God, to rely on your strength more completely, God. Lord, I pray for that grace on our church. And Lord, I pray that as we walk in that, that it would be a powerful witness to the world, Lord. God, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your word. We pray that it would have uh, just much fruit in our lives, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Let Josh know you appreciate the word of the Lord this morning. Amen. Thank you, Josh. God bless you. Man, I got fed this morning. How many of you appreciate getting fed? Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.